The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. But diversity, you know, is by definition also divisive, right? So if you feel like your two groups are in conflict or if you don't speak the same language, then those ideas are not flowing. One of the characteristics of the world, especially thanks to social media and the internet, is that we are at once exposed to a greater array of ideas and, you know, algorithms shape our, our vision of that. So we only see a certain portion of that. And we're also able to create new tribes as never before. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of the Progress Network, and joined as always by my co-host, Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of the Progress Network. And this is our weekly podcast, What Could Go Right, where we talk about the news of the day and interview fascinating folks who have distinctive views about, yes, what could go right, or at least views of how we should handle what is going wrong. And today we're going to talk to someone, as we have talked to a few people on this program, who are uh, trying to connect lots of dots and trying to create a unified field theory of who we are and how it is that human beings have, yes, in the past, actually solved challenges, problems. What is it about human beings and human societies that has allowed us, unlike other animals that we are aware of on this planet, to act collectively. Sometimes that collective action has been destructive, no doubt. Often that collective action has been constructive. We've been able to galvanize our collective resources in order to solve problems. And what is it about human beings that allows that to happen? Uh, and so we're going to talk to someone today who has, if not a unique theory, then certainly a new and compelling one of what it is about humans and how humans have done this. So Emma, who are we going to talk to today? So today we are going to be talking to Michael Muthukrishna, who's an associate professor of economic psychology at the London School of Economics and Political Science and technical director of the database of religious history. He's also a board member of the One Pencil Project, which is dedicated to the intersection of education, scientific research and philanthropy. So today we're going to be talking to him about his book, A Theory of Everyone, which goes over what Zachary just described. So let's go talk to Michael. Michael Muthakrishna, or should I say Dr. Michael Muthakrishna, you uh, have a 
fascinatingly eclectic and heterodox background, and you have an insanely modestly titled new book called A Theory of Everyone, The New Science of Who We Are, How We Got Here, and Where We're Going. So tell us the story of you. What was your background and training? How did you get to where you are? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I was like, you know, I want to study physics or, I don't know, philosophy or, or, or computer science or something like that. But I decided human behavior was was underneath it all. But I'm also a, a person who likes managing risk. And I was like, a, a degree in psychology isn't uh, the most marketable thing. So I'm going to do this with something else like law, medicine, or engineering. And so I started uh, working, um, did a dual degree at the University of Queensland in Australia, where I did engineering and psychology. And in the psych degree, at first, I was really into it. I was like, this is really interesting. It's about human behavior. Um, but I, I kind of got a bit disillusioned. I felt like everything I was learning in, in engineering and other sciences weren't being applied to the study of human behavior. There wasn't this kind of overarching theoretical framework. And so I started applying the insights that I could believe to, to engineering design. Um, and then around you know 2007, I watched uh, Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. And uh, I started reading more about climate change, you know, the IPCC reports, the Pentagon reports. And it seemed to me that uh, everyone was really focused on, on mitigation. And I was like, okay, this seems, this is reasonable. I mean, if we can slow the economy to save the planet, that would be great. But I don't think that's going to happen. It seems to run against so many things uh, to do with human nature and, uh, you know, a competition in which, you know, every country is trying to outcompete every other country. Every company is trying to outcompete every other company and everybody wants more than their neighbors. So it just seemed unlikely that was going to happen. And so when you read the reports, there were all kinds of uh, challenges that, were ahead, you know, that we were heading towards. And it didn't seem like we were prepared to deal with things like mass migration, uh, the energy crisis, uh, or any of these things. We didn't have a good science. So I wanted to try to develop a, a science of culture, not to be an academic, but just to have better tools for, for tackling the challenges of, you know, how do you build a harmonious society? How do you get people to work together? How do you build successful organizations? How do you increase innovation? Those kinds of challenges. Eventually, you know, I realized that people had been working on this. We had made some major breakthroughs that I, I you know, I describe as a, a theory of human behavior or a theory of everyone. This kind of revolutionary shift in our understanding that happens sometimes in a science that really causes the science to mature. You know, as an example of this, you know, Newton is a bright guy. He, he, he already understands, you know, he's developing models in, in physics, but he's trying to turn lead into gold. And he's doing that not because he's stupid, but he doesn't have an understanding that the world is made up of elements and you can't turn lead into gold. You can do all kinds of chemistry, but that doesn't count. That's alchemy. But for alchemy to turn into chemistry, you need a periodic tape. And there's a, there's a particular set of conditions under which that happens. You know, I go into the details in my book, I'll spare you. But the idea is that the reason that humans are so different to other animals is that we aren't just reliant on genetic instincts or uh, what we can learn over our lifetime, but this kind of culturally, you know, socially acquired software running on our hardware. So the human brain hasn't changed all that much in the last few million years, um, you know, tripled in size, and then it kind of leveled off uh, at around, you know, several hundred thousand years ago. And if anything, it's kind of shrunk, but we have gotten clever and we have gotten clever not because our brains changed, but because the software running on those brains changed. So uh, our ability to reason, uh, our ability to count, uh, all of those mental tools that we have are, are, are socially acquired. And so we have nice math for describing how, how that software evolves, how it is that humans acquire that software, how innovations take place, and it has implications for how we work together. And so as I was kind of p putting these pieces together, I realized um, 
this is making major major shifts within the uh, you know behavioral sciences. It's moving over into economics. It's moving all into these into other adjacent sciences, the biological sciences. But a lot of people in the public don't know about it yet, and yet it affects everything about our decisions that we have to make in the coming century. That reminds me a lot of kind of like the progress studies call that Patrick Carlson and Tyler Cohen, I think, put out a few years ago. It's like that same kind of question of how do you optimize for a certain set of conditions, right? Like how do you optimize society to get you to XYZ place? But before we get into all of that, like your answer for for how we do that, can you talk a little bit more? You know, you mentioned climate change earlier, why you feel that this is kind of the like answering this question is sort of the game changer in terms of where we are in history. Because that seems really important as to why you would like dive into this theory in the first place. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was the starting point. The starting point was that um, when there were, you know, as economists, you know, when there are shocks to a system, a lot of the, a lot of institutions fail, right? Or there's a big, there's a big change that can take place. And there were, there were clearly changes that were coming as a result of climate change. So I'll give you an example. When a you know, a million Bangladeshis are underwater and they're kind of streaming large number of refugees into India. Can India deal with that? Does the infrastructure can it deal with it? Can the institutions deal with it? And I think we saw, you know, most recently at Europe's doorstep, the Syrian migration crisis was a climate change precipitated disaster of the kind that had been commonly happening in Africa but doesn't really quite make the news until it's at your doorstep, right? So there, there were droughts. People flooded in from rural areas into cities in order to find jobs. There weren't the jobs for them. The infrastructure couldn't cope. And so people eventually rioted and you have a refugee crisis. And so that has knock-on effects, right? So when, you're, when you have a million people at your door, this isn't, like a, this isn't an ideal case where you can design a wonderful immigration policy. It's a humanitarian case and you deal with it as best you can. But it's like guests turning up in your house and you haven't bought enough groceries. Are you going to be able to tackle that problem, right? And so when you put people under resource constraints, everything becomes more difficult. It becomes more difficult to govern them. And this can lead to feedback loops where uh, everything becomes a little bit more challenging. Uh, you know, alongside that, Emma, what I was, what I, one of the big puzzles that I work on is uh, the puzzle of large-scale cooperation of the kind that we see in the modern world. So you know, we're doing this as a podcast, but we could have been in the same room. And you might take that for granted, but it's, it's, it's a very strange thing, actually. Like if from a cross-species perspective, if we were, you know, four chimps, we'd be kind of four dead and maimed chimps. Uh, it's kind of weird from a historical perspective. You know, if, uh, this was, you know, a few hundred years ago. We're from very different places. Like it would be, it would be a threatening situation. And even geographically today, there are some places that are much safer than others. So the question is, how did that happen? And the answer seems to be that there's a cooperation goes hand in hand with excess energy availability. And when we discovered millions of years worth of stored sunlight in the ground during the industrial revolution thanks to cheap and available coal we were able to use that to kind of supercharge you know human ingenuity and it incentivized it created a positive some world where it incentivized people working together to do great things uh, you know build an internet engage in massive uh, innovation but also terrible things like you know colonization and, and wars of conquest so when those things were tearing in hand that that was great we had this we had this huge energy explosion but we're facing a slightly different situation today, particularly since the 1970s, where the numbers, both artificially, thanks to OPEC, but also in reality, energy availability is kind of decreasing. So in the book, what I call the space of the possible, which is created by 
our energy ceiling and, and the innovations and technological efficiencies is shrinking on us. And so that alongside all of these crises and just increasing number of people makes everything a little bit more difficult. But because we do have a kind of theory of everyone, we have, the, we have a deeper insight than we've ever had. We have a kind of periodic table for people. I think we're also, for the first time, able to tackle some of those challenges. Yeah, I mean, you do have an inherently optimistic slash problem-solving DNA in human history and maybe in human mm -hmm. DNA, or at least in the human social organization, in that a lot of what you point out is this ability to learn and work collaboratively. There have been philosophers and evolutionary biologists and all who have pointed out that most of the particulars that human beings do, at least one of those things other animals do. But that almost that, that it's impossible to find an example of any other species that we are aware of currently on this particular right. planet who are able to combine all of those into some lattice or framework, let alone a cognitive framework that allows for knowledge transmission, whether that's through writing or oral history, or I guess now whatever we call this digital right, transmission right. system, right? We, you know, so I, I I mean, that to me augurs for the ability to solve collective problems. I suppose, I guess, suppose a pushback would be it also augurs for our ability to magnify the problems that we create, right? So the, the two-edged sword part of it. Do you come out more on the, because we've collectively been able to come together more or less and solve the problems that we've created, that we are likely to continue to do so? Or are you more agnostic about it could go either way? Yeah, so I mean, from from my perspective, uh, you know, it's like any financial advice you get: past results are no guarantee of future performance, right? So, what I'm trying to do in the book is to say it's not sufficient to just say, "Hey, look, we've always been able to uh, technologically magic our way out of things." We need to understand how how exactly that happened. Like, what are the levers of innovation, and why is it that if you look at just about any marker of progress? Uh, you know, I like the way Ian Morris puts it. The Industrial Revolution makes a mockery of everything that came before. Like it's a, it's an almost vertical takeoff in in declines in violence, child mortality, uh, survival rates, uh, you know, lifespan, health, whatever you want. And the last time we saw a phase shift like that was the Agricultural Revolution. And so you need a, you need if you want to say that we're always going to be able to make our way out of this, you need a, you need some kind of theory, some mechanism, some explanation for what happened in that moment what happened in previous moments like that and then you need to look at you know those metrics and say okay well what does what does that mean for our future is it like is it going to be a situation so you know when the agric the agricultural revolution was a major shift the last one i suppose was fire right um with fire we were able to kind of pre-digest food save the mechanical movement of our jaws and shrink our guts and grow our brains and but after that still as hunter gatherers in terms of uh, our populations, it was a one-to-one -one return on your time going out and hunting and gathering. With agriculture, we had a solar technology. So we switched from hunting and gathering to, if you like, harvesting and grinding, You know where you can grow things. It's far more efficient. And at first, that's great because you grow your populations, you push hunter-gatherers to the margins, you've outcompeted them. But then eventually, abundance turns back to scarcity as your population size meets your new carrying capacity. And then agriculturalists start fighting with one another. And then you're in this Malthusian world where 
it's a zero sum world where your loss is my gain, wars of conquest, and you know this kind of flat line in terms of very very slight increase of anything, blips if anything um, in terms of progress until you hit the industrial revolution, where again you see this massive takeoff, and as I said, that's because you had jewels upon jewels of compressed you know photosynthesis turned to chemical form and compressed into coal, oil, and natural gas. And so we've been in the rising phase for a long time, but that same pattern that abundance eventually turns to scarcity as population size carrying capacity catches up is, is where we are now. And so if we, if we, you know, this is what could go right. If we want to kind of reach that next level of abundance, it actually does require uh, the next energy revolution. Um, it, I, I think if, we, if you look at the numbers, so there's, there's a particular metric that I want to share is uh, energy return on investment from the energy sciences. So this tells you how much energy you get back from how much you put in. And in an ideal world, you want a kind of small, tiny energy sector of your economy and a, and a very large, all the other stuff, the energy is buying you, the vacations, the, uh, you know, the food, the going out with your friends, all of that stuff. And so if you look at, for example, all the metrics look like this, but I'll give you like oil discovery rates, right? So in 1919, one barrel of oil found you another thousand. By 1950, one barrel of oil found you another hundred. And by 2010, one barrel of oil found you another five. So in other words, our, our civilization, I mean, as, as a species, excess energy is shrinking, like the literal amount that excess stuff is, is decreasing. And that's what drives growth, right? That and the innovations with which we can, you know, the things we can do with energy, those are the two things that drive growth. And so the, it's shrinking. And we had a, you know, the nuclear age was kind of stillborn for a fear of, you know, previous generations. And I think that would have put us, would have kept us on that path, but we didn't invest and now's the time to do it. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. Jigar Shaw, who now leads the Department of Energy's loan program for, for large-scale 
uh, infrastructure projects, particularly for new energy, uh, who we had a conversation with. I think his perspective would be, and many people's, that we really aren't in a scarcity moment. We we are, as you point out, in a we, we may not be we may have passed peak oil, but uh, we certainly are producing enough, and also demand globally is going down. So there's that that match as well because the ability to substitute new sources of energy, some of which are renewable, some of which are still carbon based, has exceeded that particular scarcity abundance dynamic. So I do want to push back and ask, it, it may be true that in any one particular vertical, um, sc- abundance is giving way to scarcity, but on an on a aggregate basis, whether that's human calories produced, whether that's energy of, of any form, hydro, nuclear, solar, coal, gas, we seem to be still outpacing whatever demands that we have globally. Yeah, so we, I mean, we still have, pl- you know, my reading of the energy sciences, we still have plenty of energy at the moment. And if there's a decline, it's a decline in kind of the second derivative, right? It's that uh, the rate of that or the the return is what's decreasing. If you look at the energy return on investment numbers, not all the technologies look alike. So if you have, uh, for example, hydropower, that's amazing. It's got nice returns. Something like solar, because the panels are, are, are getting cheaper and they, uh, their lifespans are outstripping what we expected, uh, they're great. You still have the battery problem, and you also have the problem that it requires an investment upfront that isn't paid off for quite some time. right? So as a society, you're, you're using some amount of energy to get some amount of energy back in the, in the future. Um, Nuclear technologies, there's a there's an issue because it depends on the size of what you're doing. I mean, I guess the overall point is, you know, you've got small modular reactors, you've got micro reactors, the big ones, we're not amazing at building them, but the Koreans seem to be doing a fine job. There are all these technologies that are available to us. But where we find ourselves uh, in this particular moment is a slowdown. So there's plenty to go around, but when there's, when there's less available to us, so bef- before every major recession in the last 50 years, there's been a spike in energy prices, or there's been a, a restriction in the amount of excess energy available to civilization. And those are the moments where you trigger people's kind of zero-sum biases, because there's, there's an economic slowdown, and it makes everything much more difficult. Like, it's easier to be nice when there's more to go around. In, in the book, I use this analogy of, um, of kind of buses coming along. So if you, you know, if you imagine kind of the amount of energy available to you, uh, is is the rate of buses coming along, and there's you know there's buses coming every five minutes. There's there's still going to be mumblings and grumblings, right? So people are going to be upset that there's a there's a one percent who always get their way to the front of the line, and they're going to be upset that some people let other members of their group to the front of the line. But it's just mumbling and grumbling as long as the buses are coming every five minutes. What we're seeing is a slight slowdown. So it's maybe every ten minutes, you know, every every hour. But when that gets too slow, suddenly those that mumbling and grumbling kind of breaks out into something more. Uh, it's like driving around a car park for a very long time, and you, you know someone takes that place, or you know, dep- how you're going to react depends on how many more spaces are available. So all of that makes it more difficult to engage in or invest in the um, the technologies that are available to us today that will solve this crisis in the longer term. We face kind of a social cooperative breakdown in the in the shorter term whenever there's a there's a shock on that. That's the argument that I make in the book. 
So I mean, it's it's a it's a it's it's a fundamentally optimistic book because these technologies do exist, and even more uh, promising technologies, you know, like um, nuclear fusion, for example, right? Uh, it's perpetually between Monday and thirty years away. We have for the first time some promising technologies and a startup ecosystem around that, and lots of investment in the in the private and public sector. That's exciting, and that would set us on a path that would. You know, we'd be the first generation of a galactic civilization in terms of the excess energy. I mean, so whether or not we agree with your point, this is all coming from energy scarcity. I think it's definitely that's how people feel at the moment, that there's a little bit of a breakdown of social cooperatives, cooperativeness, as you put it. Um, and people do feel like other people are cutting the line and there's not so much to go around. So regardless of the the source of that, um, absent nuclear fusion suddenly working or, you know, the green revolution, which is not going to occur in the next at least five years. What's a humankind to do? Meaning what are the suggested solutions as far as um, using human behavior to get us to all get along a bit better? So uh, there's two sides, you know, there's two sides. So in, in, in evolutionary biology, we talk about, you know, ultimate and proximate causes. So, you know, as, as an example, um, why do people like chocolate? You, you know, approximately it sets off endorphins in your brain and it's pleasurable to eat and so on. But at an ultimate level, it's because your genes are, uh, are tuned to pick up on, you know, fruits when they are kind of optimal calories and vitamins. And so that sweetness is what you're detecting in, in your genes. And that's the kind of an ultimate explanation for it. So that, you know, the case I'm making, and again, this is, this is a debate for the energy sciences. Uh, how much excess energy is available to us in terms of energy return on investment is, is, from my perspective, the ultimate cause of this, even if there's plenty in aggregate. But at approximate level, you can get stuck in, in psychological traps of beliefs in zero-sumness, whether the reality reflects that or not. So if you believe that the world is zero-sum, then you start to behave in destructive competitive ways, right? If, if someone else's win is your loss, and your win is their loss, it means that the only way to get ahead, because we're all in a status competition, is to, is to not work harder, work better, but to harm someone else. And often, you know, um, humans are a competitive species, but we're also a cooperative species, and we cooperate to compete. So it's not necessarily like me against everyone else, it's my group versus your group. And so I think if, you know, if, uh, if you've got good data, that actually there is plenty to go around and that we're not in a reality of this situation, then making people aware of that uh, can help. But it's not like, it's not telling people, it's actually showing people, look, the economy is growing, things are going well, uh, there are jobs available that can help break people out of it if there is a true reality. But otherwise, their own psychology can create that reality because if the, if, if the country is more difficult to govern, for example, things start to fall apart. That's, that's one side of it. I mean, the other side of it is that in general, we face a more difficult governance challenge today because we live in more diverse culturally and politi you know, politically diverse societies. So it's easier, it's easier to make good decisions when you are on the same page in terms of fundamentals. Like if you are Denmark and you agree that uh, socialized medicine is the way to go, then you can, you can elect the best person to, to push forward that agenda. But if you don't agree on those fundamentals, you can't pick the best person. You have to pick your person because your person is very different to, to someone else, right? And so the more kind of diverse and clustered our societies become, the more kind of 
cracks and fractures exist. And then, you know, for ultimate reasons, if there's any pressure put on society, it, everything falls apart. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was thinking when you were speaking just now of the the negative side of the social learning strength that you've pointed out in your work, even before this book that has characterized human evolution or human societies, right? In that, uh, one of the things that is evident or at least it feels evident in the moment about social media, about these technologies of communication, is that never before have so many people had access to so much collective information. And never before have so many individuals been able to add their voice to that collective information, the aggregate of which is often cacophonous and confounding noise. Nonetheless, that just remains true. And you know, it, it's almost testing out the theory of if we are all individually and collectively exposed to too much information that we are predisposed to ingest and digest, um, one, what's the danger of individual and collective short-circuiting? Meaning is, is one of the reasons that people now filter out in their filter bubbles information that doesn't scan with their worldview is that there's just too much information. So there's a tendency of, it's like, well, I can't take that in. And B, is there a risk that there will be too much negative feedback loops and negative learning? Whereas the history before this has been the filtering out of the negative, more or less, right? I mean, we've had some pretty horrific moments. So I'm, I'm just wondering about that as you speak. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the kind of problem that you're describing uh, in, in, in my world, you know, I call it the paradox of diversity, you know, and that is that diverse sources of information are, and, and diversity in general is kind of the fuel for recombinatorial innovation, like seeing the world differently. Uh, things like intellectual arbitrage, like taking a solution from one discipline or domain and applying it to another for, for great effect. But diversity, you know, is by definition also divisive, right? So if you are, uh, if you feel like your two groups are in conflict or if you don't speak the same language, then those ideas are not flowing. One of the characteristics of the world, especially thanks to social media and the internet, is that we are at once, it's exactly what you said, you know, we are at once exposed to a greater array of ideas, but we're also able to, and, and you know, algorithms shape our, our, our vision of that. So we only see a certain portion of that. And we're also able to create new tribes as never before. So, you know, there are, in the past, if you had strange views or you were part of a minority, you wouldn't be able to find other people like you, like, you know, you're into collecting porcelain plates or in the book, I use some examples from subreddits, right? Like, are you into carrying like sand in your pocket and interested in all of the benefits of pocket sand? Maybe not, but 30,000 people are, you know, uh, do you like stapling bread to trees? Probably not, but there's a 300,000 people on that subreddit who, you know, regularly post pictures of these things. So those are silly examples, but the internet enables you to find other people like yourself. You know, if you suffer a particularly rare medical condition, you can find other people in terms of those treatments. But what you're creating are new, different cultural groups, tribes. And the trouble is that I, I, don't think, I don't think it's about more information. I think it's about like whom you trust. Like what are the boundaries of your trust? Like where does trust turn to mistrust in terms of your group? And most of the, you know, one of the insights from this idea that most of our, our intelligence comes from our software is that... Um, we are happy. We are very willing to hold crazy ideas in our head if we got that information from those we trust. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So one is that um, you believe that you know illness is created by 
invisible animals, these germs that surround us at all times, right? You personally may have never seen a germ. Maybe you remember seeing something under a microscope, but you don't have a real understanding of that. But you live in a world where the smartest people and most people and everyone behaves with these costly displays of washing their hands and so on. And, you know, so at, at an aggregate level, it's, it's very true, but that's at an aggregate level. As an individual, you don't have access to that truth. You know, and you even believe things that, so that one's kind of unintuitive because you don't see these germs all the time, but you also believe things that violate your everyday experience. Like you believe, like you see a flat earth and you see a sun tracing the sky from east to west, but you know, you'll swear up and down that you're on a, you're on a spheroid rotating around a star, one of many stars in the Milky Way. My, my point is that, you know, our, what we believe to be true, um, the things that we decide are, are worthy of acting on and behaving with. These things are acquired through trust, not more or less information. I'm going to leave that very thorny issue aside for now, although we can jump into it at a later point if we want to, and jump into another incredibly thorny issue, uh, which is immigration, right? We talked a little bit about this in the beginning. Uh, but one thing that comes to my mind as we're talking about, as you said, most of our human intelligence coming from the software, right? So coming from the culture around us, that automatically leads into the next step of, well, some cultures are better than others, right? Like some cultures do, they get to the end point that you want to get to faster or with fewer human rights violations or in a way that, that we prefer. Um, and of course, that gets into the horror of a lot of immigration debates. So for you, how do you see this? Um, particularly if you are looking at a world where if climate change does lead to mass migration, we're going to be seeing right. um, a lot of the same issues that we're seeing now. So it comes down to this kind of paradox of diversity, right? Like to build to build a, a great society is not unlike building a great organization. Like it matters who you're hiring, and it matters, uh, you know, how, how you onboard those people and how they get along, and and so on. In general, you know, if you look at the data, um, you know. Immigrants have been America's super serum that has led to, you know, super advances in technology and so on. But a lot of that data comes from a time when immigrants from more were from more culturally close places. What America does well, you know, so I have this quote from Lee Kuan Yew in the book, Singapore's founder, and you know, he knew like he he had a hard time. He Singapore is a tiny place, but it's made up of uh, people of Malay origin, uh, people of Indian origin, people of Chinese origin, different religions, and he's trying to build a society. And he says, you know. China could draw on a talent pool of 1.3 billion people, but the United States could draw on the world's 7 billion people and recombine them in a diverse culture that exudes creativity in a way that ethnic Han nationalism cannot. So, you know, I'd say that you, I don't know if you, you want to say that some cultures are better than others, but on any particular metric, like educational outcomes, um, efficiency, productivity, uh, economic output, you know, maybe even care and concern, different societies. Uh, do have different outcomes. And one of the benefits of a multicultural society is judging one another, actually, but judging one another in view of borrowing the best things and recombining them into something brand new that's better than, you know, than, than what any particular culture has on its own. The challenge there is that you get these large cultural distances, and it's more difficult to cross that barrier when people see the world in entirely different ways. We, you know, we have new methods of measuring cultural distance. And, you know, in some new work, it's highly predictive of things like uh, uh, labor force participation in more socialist countries where it's easier to, to be on social benefits, right? And you can see that the fiscal contributions of more culturally close migrants is higher than the fiscal contributions of culturally more distant migrants. And I don't think that's a call to say, you know, well, we should have culturally close migrants. Is that if you're going to design a policy that takes advantage 
of the recombinatorial benefits of more highly skilled but more culturally distant migrants, you're going to have to have some kind of onboarding so that they can bring those skills. Language is the most obvious example. They have to speak the same language or there's going to be, there's going to be no communication. So in, in the book, I describe immigration policies, like a sane immigration policies. It, you think about it as kind of a sampling strategy from different cultures, right? And cultures are not homogenous wholes. Like there's actually a lot more regional diversity in China than there is in the United States. So you're not, you know, you're not picking from a homogenous hole. You're thinking about, okay, what criteria could I use in my immigration policy to, as I would in terms of employing people for a great organization, how can I pick the best people? And then you start to look at what those things are. So high levels of education. So education is a cultural download. It automatically makes you culturally closer. Uh, you know, we have data to support that. It automatically makes you culturally closer and also allows you to fit the gaps. Finding people who are bringing skills that are missing in the economy means that people who are already in this organization recognize we need more hairdressers or we need more fruit pickers or we need more doctors or we need more engineers. And so it's easier to onboard people when there's clearly a job available to them. Age matters too, right? Um, uh, you know, points-based systems like those you find in Canada and Australia, you know, aim for the 25 to 36 age group. So they've already have an education and they have a large working life ahead of them. Um, the numbers that people come in matter, right? If you have people coming in in very large numbers, it's easier for them to segregate from the rest of society. If they're coming in in smaller numbers, they're more likely to integrate. It's like, you know, if you, if you imagine the dynamics of a, a kid going to school, uh, you're going to be matching on like, you know, kids into Pokemon, they'll find other kids who like Pokemon. But if they have large people who also share their ethnicity, not only will they find a kid who likes Pokemon, but also has their background, right? So what you want is people to be more diffused so that they don't form these kind of segregated communities. But the overall point is that you're trying to solve this paradox of diversity, which is you're trying to say, okay, what aspects of diversity are good for that recombinatorial effects on innovation and economic growth? And what are the things that we need to have in common so that we don't have these conflicts when it comes to communication and coordination and just collaborating with one another? So final question, simple, really easy softball kind of question. Uh, how do you apply all of this to the real world? <laughs> Meaning as a, as, a, as a theory of individuals, what, how do you close the gap? And maybe you don't close the gap between the awareness of this is how human societies function and then the devilishly difficult details of how do you actually solve problems? And you know, not everyone has to do everything. I, I, I do not think it is incumbent upon you or anyone who is shaping theories of how we function to also then come up with the solutions for specific problems. So don't, don't get me wrong on that. I think ideas and frameworks shape things in ways that are, you know, either inherently constructive or inherently imperative, but that doesn't mean that all of us have to then solve particular problems, right? I mean, I can talk about energy supply, but I don't have to be the guy coming up with small pebble nuclear reactors. That being said, you, you do have an interesting, we, we began this with a, with a heterodox background and you, you are aware of some of the applications of this. So in a, you know, a short way, even though this could be the beginning of an entirely other conversation, what are some of the ways you could apply your observations to actual problem solving? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a lot of my work is kind of policy advice and my interest is, you know, I'm not a huge fan of admiring the problem and looking at how great it is and just kind of describing it. I want to be able to turn that into, into real actions. And, you know, you know, I think I say in the book, you know, the difference between utopia and a better world is the acceptance of constraints about who we are and how we got here and where we are in this moment. 
And so part one of the book is, is exactly that. It's like, who are we? How do we get here? Like, where are we in this moment? And then part two is all about, you know, direct policy application. So what does that imply for how should we be thinking about um, innovation? How should we be thinking about uh, inequality or, you know, tax policies? Like inequality isn't necessarily a problem, but it matters what's creating that inequality, like whether it reflects some kind of contribution or not. We should be, you know, taxing things that are unproductive rather than things that are productive, like less on the income and capital gains and sales and more on things like land value or something like that. As a, you know, it, it, to answer the question more um, quickly, I suppose, is to say that we aren't, one of the lessons in the book and one of the lessons is that we're not always very good at designing policies, but we are good at designing, you know, evolving policies, if you like, like what we see in terms of successful policies are the ones that made it. And what you can do is you can design a system like the United States is designed as a system that searches through policies thanks to its federal structure, right? So Justice Brandeis once described each state as a laboratory. You try different things at each state, and if it works, you bubble it to the top. And if it doesn't, you discard it. It failed at a local level. It's the same way that Silicon Valley works, right? You think of it as a, a bastion of success. It's a graveyard of failure. It's just that the few successes, we call them unicorns because they're so rare, they pay for all of the rest that you've long forgotten. And you know, I, I point to other places like Estonia, for example, that now tops the, uh, the PISA student performance tables in terms of mathematics, reading, uh, and, and science. So all of them in the Western world. And it went from like, you know, in 1991, after the Soviet occupation, they had half the country didn't have a telephone. And now they you know, have the highest number of, uh, of unicorn companies per capita in the world. And they do it in the same way. They have radical decentralization where schools and municipalities have a lot of control to try different things. They're bubbling the best solutions to the top. Michael just gave us a little taste of like all the other stuff in the book that the conversation didn't cover because this conversation could have gone in a lot of different ways. So go out and read the book and you can give Michael your feedback. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you, Michael. We'll be right back after this break. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political Breakdown Daily. 
every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. Well, that was enlivening and eye-opening. We, we've had a number of conversations with people who are intellectually uh, eclectic and heterodox and open. Uh, I think one of my beefs with academia, we didn't get into this with Michael, has been that that kind of heterodox thinking is not usually supported within traditional departments, although increasingly many schools in different parts of different schools are embracing a more open or interdisciplinary approach. And it's only when you have that intellectual curiosity across predetermined silos that you get these kind of interesting theories about how human beings function. You know, it's a little bit of economics and it's a little bit of political science and it's a little bit of psychology and it's a little bit of physics and, you know, it's a little bit of all these things. Right. I mean, otherwise we're just like a bunch of dots and certain people have really deep knowledge on one dot or maybe two dots, but there's no one to connect the dots, right? And I feel like there's that slightly pejorative phrase, like jack, well, not slightly, it is pejorative, jack of all trades, master of none, right? But you can be a master of one and then also try to connect the dots for other people. And I think that anyone really attempting to do that is admirable because I think the connect the dotness is what a lot of people are missing these days. So we give thanks to people like Michael that help us connect the dots. And look, if any one theory actually did explain everything, it would be religion, and then we would reject it. (laughs) So let's pivot now from the sublime to the mundane, from the theories of who we all are to some of the specific news and ideas and things going on in the world that we have noticed and you might have missed. All right, let's do it. All right, so news, news, news you can use. What have we got this week? I don't know if this is news you can use, but it's just an absolutely wild story, and I felt that we needed to talk about it. It's from the Washington Post, and it's about a topic that we have both discussed at length and completely not discussed at all, that being vaccinations and the Taliban. But you weren't expecting that combo. We have discussed each separately. We might have discussed them sequentially, I doubt we have discussed them collectively. So this is one of those stories like the one I told about Egypt and hepatitis C. And this one also involves hepatitis, by the way. It's kind of really bad until it starts to turn good. But we're on the cusp of turning good right now, which is why we are highlighting it. People might not be aware that there are only two countries left in the world that have polio, that have endemic polio. And those two countries are Afghanistan and Pakistan. This is one of the busiest border crossing points between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And that's why it is also a key battleground in the fight against polio. Medical staff try to vaccinate as many children as they can under the age of five. Two drops of the vaccine, a mark on the finger, and they're on their way in less than a minute. I know about polio. I know that the vaccine prevents paralysis in children. We have seen what health benefits it can bring to children on TV efforts. For the last, let's say, 20 years or so, uh, the Taliban has been very anti-vax. And they have been stopping the WHO efforts to vaccinate, particularly kids, in Afghanistan against polio. 
So you might think to yourself, well, maybe the Taliban has an ideological reason to be against these vaccines, and you would be wrong. The reason why the Taliban had been preventing these vaccines from happening, and in fact, even attacking the vaccinators, is because the CIA was running a fake hepatitis vaccination program next door in Pakistan. Around the time they were trying to find Osama bin Laden, they were trying to collect a DNA sample that was close to his or matched his, something like that. So because of that, the Taliban was like, listen, we can't trust these vaccination campaigns, or so they say. But now they have done an about face, and this is what the Washington Post article is about. The Taliban says that it is a priority for us now, that's what their spokesman told the Washington Post, to get these vaccinations throughout the country. And they, like I said before, they confirmed they did not have an ideological problem with it, which is helpful for people that uh, may worry that the vaccines are anti-Islamic. If the Taliban says it's okay, you could probably assume that it is fine because it doesn't get much more conservative than the Taliban. I'm kind of hoping that they stick to their word on this. They let the vaccinators do their thing. They actually say the Taliban is now overseeing the vaccinations in a positive way. And I'm hoping that maybe we can finally wipe out endemic polio with Afghanistan and then maybe eventually Pakistan as well. Yeah, that is a wild story and one example <laughs> amongst many of CIA and covert operations having, let's say, unintended consequences, blowback on mm. things that are otherwise uh, healthy and good. So it's hard usually to be sympathetic to the Taliban's position on most things, although in this particular case, I suppose there was a degree of legitimate wariness on the part of the Taliban's leadership that these vaccines weren't in fact vaccines at all, but were simply a way for some kind of intelligence gathering and infiltration. And in this particular case, they would have been correct. Again, this is not meant to anyone listening as a full-throated endorsement of Taliban leadership in Kabul and Afghanistan, but it is an indication that uh, you know once once you're in a position of having to actually be responsible for people in their lives, it leads to a different set of calculations. So here's to no CIA vaccination programs and more polio eradication. Um, Pakistan does not seem to be on board with this, by the way. The Pakistani Taliban is not on board, but the Afghani Taliban is. So we're going to we're going to take that part. First, first steps. <laughs> so moving on from Afghanistan, we are going to go to Greece, I very rarely have good news stories about Greece, but we have one this time. A lot of people might not be aware that the Greek diaspora until very recently, meaning 2021, could not vote unless they flew back into the country. So they were, you know, if you moved out of Greece and, you know, Greece has a pretty bad brain drain, uh, you have not been voting in Greek elections. By the way, they were the only country in Europe and perhaps the entire Western world with a law like that. They did change that in 2021, but the restrictions were so burdensome that it didn't really make a whole lot of real difference. But Prime Minister Mitsotakis has now announced new voting reforms. And these haven't been put through yet, but they said that they will be in place before elections next year. And that is that they have opened mail-in voting for both Greeks inside and outside the country, which is really big. But even for people inside the country that are seasonal workers, uh, let's say you're out working on the islands and you're registered to vote in Athens or Thessaloniki, which is in northern Greece, you can't vote right now. Uh, if you're elderly or disabled, you can't vote right now uh, because they need you to vote in person. So they are finally changing that. And that should be in effect, like I said, uh, sometime in 2024. 
It's going to be interesting to see how just the world of increasing digitization also changes voting. The United States is, I suppose, oddly behind on this when it comes to utilizing technology to ease voting. Mail-in voting is probably not a technology, meaning that you could have done that <laughs> 60 years ago if there was a way or a law that allowed you to do it. But I think the next wave of all this, obviously, is going to be, will you allow for more digital voting? Will you allow for more remote voting? And yes, there are huge concerns about people hacking into systems, uh, identity authentication, all the legit questions that arise if you were to allow for that. I hadn't realized that Greece was still in the, unless you can show up to an actual physical place and vote, you can't vote. Because I think many countries obviously have created some elasticity for either expats or, as we know, mail-in voting in the United States, which remains hugely controversial. It's probably going to be a big issue in 2024, particularly in that it's like, how do states tabulate these votes? You know, they're not allowed to tabulate them until they're all in on on election day. Some states can, some states can. So that's obviously going to be an issue for Greece too. But I think we probably are in the camp of we, meaning I don't want to speak for you, but I'm going to assume what you think, Emma, that more voting is better than less voting, uh, easier voting is better than hard voting, and greater participation is better for democracy than less participation. Yeah. And I'll just say too, as an extra fun fact, because people are used to the mail-in voting conversation being split right-left in the US, Mitsotakis is center-right. So this is coming from actually the, the right side in Greece, these changes. So University of Oxford just put out an update on the status of the Saiga antelope. Probably not something that people have heard about before, but of they're very they cool. Yes. Yes. All right. Oh, <laughs> it's yes. just me then. No, yeah, I have no idea. But it's a cool animal. Um, it's an antelope. So imagine an antelope body, but their heads kind of look like a camel. It's a funny look. And what's neat about them is that they have been around since the Ice Age. So they were rolling around with woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers at some point. Uh, so they'd be old. They have been moved. The red list status has been moved from critically endangered to near threatened. Right now, they the populations of the Saiga antelope are in Kazakhstan, Russia, Mongolia, and Uzbekistan. This recovery has primarily been in Kazakhstan. So in 2005, there were only 39,000 Saiga antelope. Today's estimated population is nearly 2 million. So that's Oof. you know from a lot of conservation efforts from Kazakhstan, NGOs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most of that was from poaching, illegal trade, poaching for the horns and the meat. Also, disease, climate change, infrastructure development, that plays a role as well. Protected areas defend the saiga from a range of threats such as poaching and livestock diseases. In these areas, the saiga find what they need to thrive. It was a great achievement of Kazakhstan when the number of um, saiga antelope was... Uh, enormously increased there. But it just goes to show, and we've talked about this in the newsletter before, the interesting thing about conservation efforts is when the effort is actually made, they do tend to work. So still lots more to be done, particularly in Mongolia, Russia, and Uzbekistan, where the populations are much smaller. But Kazakhstan has seen the return of the Ice Age. <laughs> you know, having looked that up when you were speaking, an image of the Saga antelope, it does look awfully like a cross between a camel and a and an antelope body mm -hmm. with a bunch of horns. 
strange looking beast. But this whole story, not just the saga antelope, but the story of re-speciation or whatever, whatever word one wants to use for this, where there have been actually major strides in preserving, saving, and restoring what had been endangered species. So as, as a global effort around endangered species, there's actually been substantial movement and progress in a positive direction. It is certainly true that there are plenty of insect species and others that become extinct because we probably didn't even fully know they existed given the plethora of insect species. But a lot of mammals, at least, we've done a pretty good job of identifying where they are endangered and making sure that they are preserved. Yep. Scientists do get mad about this, by the way. They don't like it when we focus on like the cool looking mammals to save and not like the less mythologically looking creatures. Hmm. But there clearly are image issues in the animal kingdom as well. So sorry, scientists, but human beings respond to visual cues. They do. And one last thing before we go, a few episodes back, I had brought on some figures about stay-at-home dads in the UK. Zachary, you were less than impressed by this change in numbers. And I would just like to report that we have US numbers now. Pew Research Center just did a study on this. Do you want to guess how many parents are stay-at-home dads? Huh. Yeah, one in. One in. One in. One in five. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. If people go and look at that data, if they look at the breakdown, that is not all from positive conditions. Some of that is like people, dads in poverty, dads with disabilities. Okay. That part is not positive, but some of it is. And um, we've had this discussion before, so we don't need to reiterate it, but I just thought I would uh, add in those US numbers. So thank you all for listening. Uh, We will have a Christmas, New Year's holiday break which uh, is all for the best. Although you and friends and family should feel free to listen to back episodes of What Could Go Right to spread the holiday cheer. If everybody is in the doldrums about all that is going wrong, there is things that have been happening over the past two years that we have highlighted, highlight, highlighted, and uh, that full archive is available. So if you want to scroll back through What Could Go Right to spread some feeling of like, huh, maybe next year will in fact be better than we fear, maybe even as good as we hope, probably somewhere in between. So on those various notes, we want to wish you all a constructive, peaceful, restful, restorative, contemplative, communicative, collective, community-oriented end of 2023, and we will revisit all of this in 2024. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Zachary. Happy holidays to everyone. Happy New Year. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Plug Glomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.